Thank you, Gordon and Barbara, for our music today. Welcome to those of you joining us on live stream this morning. We are again in Romans chapter 8 as we are going through this chapter, uh, calling it a study of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 15 through 17 this morning. When we first started this series, I reminded you that uh, we would be studying the Holy Spirit in chapter 8. Remember that I had told you at the time, in chapters 1 through 7 in this book, the Holy Spirit is mentioned five times. From chapter 9 through chapter 16, the Holy Spirit is mentioned eight times. But in chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 21 times in this one chapter. So it really is an emphasis on and a study of the Holy Spirit. Now, you may notice as we begin even in verse 15 that we're going to have the word spirit a lot, but sometimes with a small s and sometimes with a capital S. As in verse 15, you, re you did not receive the spirit, small s, of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, capital S. You know, as I was thinking about this, I kept saying in my mind, big S, little s. And I, Dr. Seuss came into my head, you know, big S, little s, what begins with s? And I remember, you know, that book, reading it a number of times to my kids. Big A, little A, what begins with A? Aunt Annie's alligator, A, A, A. Well, I, I got to S, and I was thinking that this week, and I couldn't remember the rest of big S, little S, what begins with S. And so I texted my kids. I said, how does that, that phrase end? And uh, there was some discussion about it, but the, uh, la the only thing I could get out of them was silly Sammy Slick got sick, sick, sick. So uh, I hope that doesn't happen to you. But anyway, we're going to talk about big S and little s uh, today. We're going, to, we're going to talk about the Spirit when we have it as a capital S, of course, in our Bible. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. But when we mean the human spirit, like the soul, it will be with a small s. And we'll see that in our, our passage. I've also called this, this message today... Uh, the spirit of assurance. It's important for us that we have assurance. You know, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that you have security, that you have eternal security. Jesus said in, in John 6, uh, if you come to him, he says, I will in no wise cast you out. John chapter 10, he said, God holds you in his hand. No man is able to pluck you out of the Father's hand, including yourself. And so we know we have security, but sometimes we don't have the assurance of our security. Sometimes in our head and our own figuring of things and sometimes our emotions and sometimes bad theology, uh, we can kind of think, well, maybe I'm not saved anymore. Maybe I'm not uh, a believer. And so we need this emphasis on what happens to us and how the Spirit of God has changed us and what's happening inside us. I, I say there are these three ways to, to know and have assurance. One is the profession of your faith. And that is, did you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and ask him to be your savior? If we call upon the name of the Lord, we shall be saved. We testify to that in baptism, right? When we say, I have believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The second way is the possession of the Holy Spirit. 
It's kind of interesting to me, especially when you read the book of Acts as the gospel was being spread out through the world at that time, uh, that the, the key to people being saved was, have you received the Holy Spirit? And uh, if they uh, are believers, then they receive the Holy Spirit. And then the third is that your life will be evidenced by you possessing the Holy Spirit because your life will be changed. And there will be a pattern of good works. There will be a changed life that comes because the Holy Spirit lives in you and is your guide. And so these three things together give us assurance. And I think our text today, as we will see, uh, speaks about these things. So let me direct your attention to our outline. You have it in your bulletin or you have it on the screen beside you. And I want to make these three points uh, from these three verses. The first is, just from the first half of verse 15, that there is a spirit of fear. Now, Paul says to these Romans, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. I make the first point that this kind of a spirit is a human spirit. And you have it, again, in the text with a small s, with the word spirit. That's your spirit. And he says, you, you human beings, did not receive this kind of a spirit. You're born with this kind of a spirit is what he's saying. This is what lives inside every human being. You wouldn't be walking around breathing and talking if you didn't have this human spirit in you. The spirit and soul sometimes are equated in the, in the Bible. You have a physical uh, existence. You have an invisible existence. And uh, sometimes when it's related to the spiritual things, it's called spirit. Sometimes when it's related to earthly things, it's called soul. But generally, uh, that's true. So you didn't receive this is what he's saying. The, the spirit of man is limited to its nature. And so every human being has, has a spirit of life within him or her, and uh, this is what you know. This is what you do. Uh, you can go through this life as an atheist. You can go through this life as an immoral person, and yet you have a spirit that is guiding you. But it's a human spirit, and the human spirit always is working to justify itself, whether before itself or other people, or justify itself before God, and it always ends in fear. It always ends in saying, I don't know if I did good enough. I don't know if I'm what I should be, because that's the human spirit. Secondly, that's bondage. So he says, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. Now that word bondage is used, interestingly, throughout the New Testament uh, in a number of places, having to do with the law of the Old Testament. And Paul may be referring to that here where he says, again, you didn't, we're not in the Old Testament again. You didn't receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. Let me remind you that he said to the Galatians in Galatians 5.1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free, and be not entangled again with a yoke of bondage. The yoke of bondage was trying to keep that Mosaic law so that you might have eternal life. When they were discussing the things at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 
15 as to how the gospel should be presented. Peter stands up and says, Now, why do you tempt God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? That yoke of bondage upon the disciples. So notice again here he says that word again because I want to emphasize the law is done. We live in the New Testament times. That doesn't mean that it's not inspired. That doesn't mean that it doesn't have truths for us to follow. But we're not law keepers. We're not Israelites. Uh, we don't live in that dispensation in the Old Testament. Galatians 3.19 says, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed should come. There was a beginning to the law. There was an end to the law. It began with Moses, it ended with Jesus Christ, the seed of God. So, we're not under that again. But, you know, it's interesting, isn't it, that people still try to keep law. And they still try to earn their way to God. Whether it's a Mosaic law or your own law or somebody else's law, uh, that's just the human spirit. And notice, thirdly, that these things then always end in fear. The conscience is never clear. The book of Hebrews talks about this conscience of the Old Testament that, you know, when the, the, the priests had to do it, the sacrifices again and again, not only every day, but then the atonement every year, and that's only good for one more year, so now we have to do it again. And what that told your conscience is, you're not done yet. Your salvation isn't complete yet. And so... Uh, Hebrews 10 says, so they could not be perfect because the conscience was not perfect until Christ came to die for them. So if it's a human work, you never know. You never quite know whether you've done enough. Remember Paul's reference to the conscience in chapter 2 and verse 15 of this book, which show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience also bearing witness, their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or excusing one another. Your conscience accuses you that you're not there yet. You can't do enough to please God. You know what I believe? I believe all religions, that is false religions other than Christianity, are invented by the human spirit. The human spirit that's within human beings makes up what it wants to make up. And it has made up thousands of religions. This is what I need to do. This is how I need to get better. If there's a God, this is how I need to please him. And those always end in bondage and always end in fear that you've never done enough. I read from our missionaries in the Middle East, and it's a wonderful thing that there's really... Uh, revival, I guess we would call it, of the gospel among Muslim people. And one of the things that our missionaries tell us is that when, the, that when a, a Muslim accepts Christ as Savior, he will say, I never knew that God loved me. I never knew that, that God had done enough for me that I didn't have to do enough for him. That he gave himself for me, I didn't have to give myself for him. And it's, it's like a light comes on. And they say, praise the Lord for this kind of truth that comes to us. Because otherwise it's bondage. It ends in fear. You never know uh, what it's going to be until you stand before God. So there's that spirit of fear. And Paul 
starts us out that way in chapter 50 or chapter 8 verse 15 in the first half. Now notice the second thing we want to look at is this spirit of adoption which begins then in chapter in verse 15 also. But notice the contrast. Not that, but this. You did receive the spirit of adoption. You did not receive the spirit of bondage and fear, but you did receive. In other words, for this, you have to receive something. You're not born with this. This one you have to accept. This one has to come your way. And so you did receive the spirit of adoption. We want to talk about that in just a minute. Remember John had written, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, adopted into God's family. So Bear with me in these three thoughts. From there, also, uh, let me read the half a verse and then verse 16. You received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Notice, first of all, that we are adopted. We, we use that word a lot and. Every society, I suppose, has some kind of adoption method where someone else's child, an orphan or whatever, becomes a part of another family. Uh, the word adopted is the word for son and the word for placing. So weos and thesia is to place a son. You can see it. Here's a child that doesn't have a family. You place this child into this family. That becomes the common word for adoption. If you'll notice, it's used, it's not that often in the New Testament, but look at, at verse 23 of the chapter that we're reading, and he speaks of our future adoption. Not only they, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption that is, the redemption of our body. And so our, we're placed into that family, but it's kind of like we, we haven't got our bedroom yet. <laughs> you know, we're, 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 we belong to this family. We've been made a part of the family, but we're going to be home with the whole family one day. And that's kind of the emphasis there. Then, not only that, but uh, if, you, if you look down to chapter 9, and verse 4, this term is uh, also referring to Israel, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers, from whom, uh, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is eternally blessed God forever. So uh, Israel was adopted as a nation by God. And God will still make that promise true to Israel as a nation. But back in our text, we're seeing this word used individually. That is, you specifically have become adopted into God's family. So notice then that you receive the spirit of adoption. More than legal. Here's an interesting thing about this that good commentators have noticed for a long time. It's not just that God wrote it off and signed a piece of paper and said, now you are my child. 
God regenerated you by his spirit. You know, if, if you're born into a family, you're not considered an adopted child, you're considered a born child. And so in a very unique way, God, through his Holy Spirit, regenerated you, gave you new life, and put his spirit, his life, in you so that you are, you might say, by nature a child of God. You have a new nature, not just that old spirit uh, of the flesh. You have a new nature by new birth. <laughs> that is a great thought when you think about it. And so Galatians uh, 3.19, wherefore then, or uh, excuse me, Galatians 4.6, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Because the Spirit of God regenerated you and made you a true birth child of God, you might say. So th that in itself is a wonderful thing. Jesus once used this term in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was praying and said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And so we are adopted. By the way, it's, uh, if I understand this right, Abba is Aramaic and Patera or Father is Greek. And so since they spoke both languages, uh, this becomes kind of an endearing term. The Abba is the Aramaic expression of Father and in our translation, father in English, but it would be patera in, uh, in Greek, is a combination of both languages that people spoke in that day. But it is true that it is for us kind of an endearing term, like saying daddy, or that kind of an expression where you know the father very intimately. So what, is our, what does our text tell us? It tells uh, whereby we say, father, when Jesus said, pray like this, our Father which art in heaven. Do you know that that was pretty new to Jewish ears? Not very often in the Old Testament did the Jew relate to God as Father, related to him as, as God, as omnipotent, as uh, the God of righteousness and uh, all of those things, but very seldom as Father. And Jesus said, when you pray now, you pray and say, our Father which art in heaven. Abba, Father. And so we're adopted. Now, we go on to verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. We're talking about the spirit of adoption, and I'm talking about uh, the assurance of our salvation. So how do we know we're saved? We have this, we have this adoption in us that makes us address our Father. Let me, let me make a grammatical point here that I, I think we should take time to notice. Because if you're reading the old version, you have the Spirit itself. And if you're reading the new version, I'm talking about the King James Version, you have then the Spirit himself. Why is that? Well, it's kind of an interesting thing. You, you understand that the biblical writers wrote without punctuation without capitalization. As a matter of fact, as we, the, the oldest manuscripts that we possess, everything was written in capital letters. They, they called the small letters cursive, which came along in the later manuscripts, so that the 
original manuscripts, when you look at them, are just a page full of capital letters. No breaks in it, no sentences, no paragraphs, no punctuation. Just a bunch of capital letters. That makes it pretty hard to figure out, doesn't it? But they had a way, they did that, of course. They, they knew how to do it. Well, father is masculine, son is masculine, but the word spirit is neuter. Because the word for spirit uh, in that language means breath or wind. Pneuma is, ends in that A, which is neuter gender. So to be grammatical, the Bible often then follows the pronoun agreeing with its noun in number and gender. If the noun is neuter, the pronoun has to be neuter. Now, in our text here, that's true. It's a neuter gender. It really grammatically should be itself. But we also know that the Bible sometimes refers to the Holy Spirit in the masculine, which would be grammatically incorrect, but theologically correct. And so there are places, for example, in the, in the book of John, especially John 15, 26, John 16, 8, and John 16, 13, if you're writing down verses. But let me give you an example. John 16, 13, how be it when he... That's a masculine pronoun. Echinos, ending in O-S, is masculine. Howbeit when he, then it says, the spirit of truth, which is neuter, is come, he will guide you into all truth. Here's a place where the Greek text under inspiration violates the principle of grammar and holds to the principle of theology that the Holy Spirit is a person, just like God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So, what our translators have done here, if you're reading the older version and you have the word itself, okay, it's just following the grammatical rule. If you have the word himself, my version capitalized here with a capital H, it's theologically correct. He is a person. And we learn that from various different places in Scripture. I know you'd like all those details, so I included it. I included it for you. Now, the Spirit Himself then bears witness with our spirit. The word is literally is a co-witness with you. The Holy Spirit soon martyreo. That the martyreo, like the word martyr, means a witness. And soon, we would have it S-Y-N in English, is witness with you. So the Holy Spirit is a witness with you, with your spirit. Now, notice the capital S and the small s, big S, little s. What begins with S? Well, the Holy Spirit begins with capital S. The human spirit begins with a small s. And that is correct in this, in this sense. By the way, again, even the word spirit in the originals, had no capitals or small. We have to determine that by, of course, the context and the theology. And so, the Holy Spirit has now come inside you. He's adopted you as a child of God, and so that Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit. Let me ask you, does that, is that true in your life? Do you have the witness of the Spirit within you? Let me tell you primarily how he does that. 
Number one, by the Word of God. Because the Word of God is what the Holy Spirit wrote. He's the author of it. And he will never contradict it. And so to say, well, God is leading me to uh, have an affair with somebody is ridiculous, though I've heard that in my life. He is never going to lead you contrary to what he has written. But people often say things as crazy as that. God is leading me to do this, and it's something that's totally unbiblical. It can't be true. But he will lead us according to his word. Secondly, he witnesses to your spirit in your conscience. Basically, that's what it means here. You have a conscience. You, you have that inner voice, that likeness of God that you are created in. And that Holy Spirit now has, has uh, centered on, uh, you know, you, your code. It's kind of like, you know, in your house, you've got to hook up to the Internet. And if, you're, if your phone and your computer and maybe your TV or whatever isn't, you know, hooked up to the right code, then you don't get the messages. But once you hook up to that, boy, you get it. Well, the code was there, but you were never hooked up to it. And now you're hooked up to that, and this voice of the Holy Spirit can say to your conscience, this is right, that is wrong. And now, though you had that voice before, it wasn't, it wasn't trained correctly. So, by the Word of God and by the conscience. Now, I'll give you three more, but we need to go to point number three in verse 16. So the Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, and what is that that he witnesses to you? You're a child of God. You're part of this family. And so notice number three on our outline, we are family. So if I gave you two primary ways that the Spirit witnesses to you, which is the Word of God and your conscience, let me give you three secondary ways, if you will. And that comes to us in family. And that is that, first of all, God is our Father. We are children of God. And so that idea, that truth, guides you. God is your Father. When God says something, even the government can't, can't mandate this. God says it to you, this is truth for you. Secondly, if you will, because we are children, we are part of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, I say the local church, your fellowship. Part of how the Holy Spirit builds you up is by what we're doing right here today. And all across this world, I, I pray for this every Sunday morning. As I think of our missionaries way off in the Middle East, they've been having services before you wake up. And then across the, uh, the European countries, uh, about the time you're having breakfast, they're preaching the Word of God in their services. Uh, England is, is six hours ahead of us here in, in our time frame. So, so they've been preaching, they've been having services, and now we are, and pretty soon the West Coast, and pretty soon in the Oriental countries. And, 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 it, and you know what's happening in those countries? People are gathered together. They're singing songs. They're praying. They're reading the Scripture, and somebody's explaining the Scripture to them. That's happening everywhere. 
And, and as far as I know, and I've been to a lot of countries with a lot of missionaries and a lot of different churches, they will do it Sunday morning, they'll do it Sunday night. They'll come back together again Wednesday night. The same thing that churches have been doing for four to 500 years uh, since the Reformation. So they're doing the same thing that we're doing. Now, what I'm saying is, this is God's ordained means. God said, I'll build my church. The last thing he said in the book of Revelation is, these candlesticks are the churches, and these stars in it are the speakers of the churches. This is what's on my heart. This is where you need to be. You learn, you grow, and the Spirit witnesses with your spirit in a local church setting. Now, I would say then thirdly of these secondary means, there's the universal church. That is, we all belong to the body of Christ, the family of God. So though you might be a member here of Faith Baptist Church in Smithville, Missouri, you are also a member of the family of God with believers all from all over the world. And you know what you do? You listen to them. You read their books. You go to their schools. You have fellowship with them. Maybe you travel to a, a mission field and, and, and work with somebody for a while. The, the universal church has an input into your life also. And uh, I hope that you're discerning enough, because I put this one at the bottom of the list because there's a lot of false voices out there, a lot of things that you shouldn't listen to. And you have to be more discerning when it gets down to this level of his witness to you. But isn't it a great thing? Uh, you know, I, I, my pastor, Eli Haru, is now with the Lord. In, and when I was teaching in California, I went to his church. And, and uh, he would always talk about his friends. Now, my friends tell me, and he would say, my Greek friends tell me, my Hebrew friends tell me. And what he was talking about were the books on his shelf. And he would go to the books in his office, and he would pull down Spurgeon. And as far as he was concerned, Charles Spurgeon was his friend. Now, he never met him because Spurgeon was long since dead. But, I mean, uh, you benefit from the universal church of God in many ways. But be careful because there's many false voices out there, too. As I was thinking about this, a verse of, of a song came into my mind, and I had to get my mind working again as to where that voice came from. But a uh, hundred years ago, Henry Van Dyke wrote the, the song, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee. It's kind of unique because the music is by Beethoven, who lived before Henry Van Dyke. Usually in a song, the songwriter writes a poem, and later some musician puts music to it. In this case, the music existed long before Van Dyke came along. He put words to the music. And the verse, verse, remember, joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love. You remember that, that kind of expression? Well, I was thinking of this third verse, which when I looked up in our songbooks, it's not even there. And this song is pushed to the back of the book anyway. So I went to an older book that the song was at the beginning, and it had the third verse. And that third verse reads, Thou art giving and forgiving, ever blessing, ever blessed, wellspring of the joy of living, ocean depth of happy rest. And here's what came to my mind. Thou the Father, Christ our brother, all who live in love are thine. Teach us how to love the other, one another. Lift us to the joy divine. 
And I thought to myself when I was reading this passage, God is our father, Christ is our brother. And we'll see that he's our brother because we're joint heirs with him from the father. And then all who live in love are thine. All who live in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ are part of our family. So, if you will, you have the spirit of fear, you have the spirit of adoption, and then thirdly, the spirit of Christ, I call it. That is, since the Holy Spirit has made you join heirs with Christ, you have the spirit of Christ also. Notice four things here. First of all, we are heirs. And so verse 17 says, if children which he established already, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And by the way, that's the only, it's the only place in the New Testament where you have the translation of joint heir, though you have it in different ways, as I'll read to you in a minute. But the point first is that you are an heir. Galatians 3.29, if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Titus 3, 7, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And even in Hebrews 1, 14, it's talking about the angels. It says, are not they all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who shall be heirs of salvation? That is to you and me. And so the Bible makes it clear that we are heirs. Here's something that I didn't realize I should have before, that you know the word inheritance is also common in the New Testament. You have an inheritance. You know where we get our English word inheritance from the word error in the middle of it. So if you look it up in an English dictionary, you'll find inheritance is defined as to make an error, inheritance. And in the Greek, it was kind of interesting. The reason I came about this is kleronomos is the person, the heir. You're a kleronomos, O-S. But inheritance is kleronomia, that is the thing itself, the neuter ending. So the person is the heir. The thing that he gets is the inheritance. Kind of interesting that we have those two words. And so... For example, Ephesians 1.14, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Or Colossians 3.24, knowing that the, of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. So we are heirs is what I'm saying, first of all. Secondly, but we are, we are co-heirs. Christ is an heir of God. You know that, of course. Hebrews 1-2 says, Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. And so Jesus Christ is heir of all things that are made. He even made them through God. And he's the heir of all things. But we are co-heirs. Now, in that language, co is the word. It's, it's one word. Joint heir is co-heir. We say it co-heir in English. They put the word, the, the prefix S-Y-N, S-U-N in that language, but S-Y-N, like synthesis, synthetic, something that is blended together, uh, that has that sin, S-Y-N prefix on it. So we are blended together heirs. 
We are co-heirs, we would translate it. Co-heirs with him. And again, uh, that word, though it doesn't, uh, isn't translated like this, it does appear this way. So in Ephesians 3, 6, the, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, exactly the same word, co-heirs, and of the same body. Or 1 Peter 3, 7, you husbands, dwell with them, that is your wife, according to knowledge as being heirs together. The translated of the same word, the same Greek word. And so we are co-heirs with him. He was a co-witness, remember we had back in verse 16. He's a co-witness with our spirit. So Paul likes this expression, co-witness, co-heirs. And notice thirdly, we are co-sufferers. So he will also say in verse 17, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we are co-sufferers with him, if we suffer with him, the exact same kind of expression, co-pathos. When we speak of the passion of Christ, we're speaking of his suffering, of his pathos. And so we have sympathy. That is pathos together with somebody is to have sympathy, S-Y-M again, sympathy. And so we are co-sufferers with the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, that's not much of an inheritance that I have. Well, you're not there yet. You are co-sufferers that we might reign with him. And so your suffering is Christ's suffering. When Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, he said, why are you persecuting me? He said, I didn't know I was persecuting you. If you're persecuting the church, you're persecuting me. We're co-sufferers, even Christ said at that point. So we're co-sufferers. And then fourthly, we are, I didn't know how to express this in English, we're co-glorified. Because then he says at the end of the verse uh, that we may also be glorified together. Co and doxa. Uh, we get doxology, the glory. So co-glorified, co-glorifiers. You know, we, we will one day be glorified with him. So the expression is we suffer in order that we might be glorified together. So how do we get to that glory? How do we get to that place where, where we will be glorified in our inheritance with our co-heir, Jesus Christ? You suffer first. You accept him as your Savior and go through this life taking what comes your way because now you're family. Now he's your brother. Now God is your father. You take whatever comes your way in that family. And we are then, we will be co-glorified with him. So it kind of goes in this progression. We're co-heirs because we are, we're co-sufferers. But because we're that, we will be co-glorified with him. And it will go in that order. So as we bring these thoughts to a conclusion, let me ask you, do you have assurance of your salvation? Have you made that profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ witnessed by your baptism? Have you made that profession in him that says, I will accept him as my Savior? Secondly, did the Holy Spirit come into your heart? Yes, he did at that time. If you made that profession and it was sincere on your part, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the Holy Spirit lives within you if you're a believer. Now, has your life changed? 
Do you see that progression going on? Do you see your life becoming more like Christ? Do you see putting away of the old things and putting on the new things? It will happen if the Holy Spirit is truly within you. And so uh, even uh, we will then eventually be glorified with him. You have an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that doesn't fade away, reserved in heaven for you. I hope that you know that. I hope that you're confident about that. Stand now with me, if you will, as we think about these things that we've read this morning and studied. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We always sing a song of invitation in our church. Our invitation is open even as we sing and after we sing. So you respond in your heart or in any way God is leading you to respond at this time. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these words of assurance that we have in this great chapter and in these wonderful verses. Just to think that because we know you as Savior and your Spirit lives within us, that we are heirs to all things, joint heirs with him that made all things, and counted as brethren and children of God. Father, what a blessing. What a great thing that is. As we go through this life and we worry about what's going on in the world and we worry about uh, what we will do today or tomorrow, uh, Father, uh, we, can, we can rest assured that we know where we're going for eternity and that uh, this life, which is but a blink of the eye compared to eternity, will seem like nothing. So let us be co-sufferers. Let us be co-laborers. Let us be also then co-inheritors with you. So bless in this time that we have together in our hearts as we take these things internally and think about them and ask your spirit to convict us. And then, Father, in any way we need to respond. Someone does not know Christ as Savior may be listening to my voice sometime later that they might, through these words, realize that they need Christ as Savior. And Father, may we then respond in the way you lay upon our hearts. And we'll thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Gordon's going to come and lead us in the song. You respond in the way that the Lord has led. <laughs>